be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Holy Spirit illuminate his word to our hearts and our minds. Mike, you may be seated. And if you haven't already, go ahead and get to 1 Peter chapter 4. I have, uh, I've been telling you throughout this study that uh, 1 Peter is a field manual for the Christian life, and uh, the Christians to whom Peter was writing were enduring suffering, and suffering makes life very difficult. Now, uh, people, human beings, we suffer in various ways, right? Uh, all the time around the world, we hear stories of human suffering, and uh, the way people deal with suffering varies widely. Uh, different, different people deal with it in different ways. And how, how suffering impacts a person can also vary as well. Uh, Anne Frank, you're familiar with that person in history, she wrote a diary. Uh, slaves in the United States of America, among many other things that they did, they composed music, songs. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, began writing philosophy, volumes of philosophy in his head while he was in the Soviet gulags. Today, people still deal with all kinds of suffering, and we do all kinds of things to deal with it. Many channel suffering into constructive activities, or they may allow their suffering to overcome them, or even begin to define their lives and, and begin to shut down. So, today, the question is, does the Bible address how Christians should suffer? How do we deal with things when the suffering isn't just short-term, but it's prolonged? It goes on for a long period of time, and our hope begins to kind of fade a little bit. It begins to wane, and we, we begin to think, is there going to be an end to this? I believe it, it does address this. And as we look around ourselves today and see the way the world is thinking and acting, folks, it is not unreasonable. I mean, there's a reason why I selected 1 Peter to go through at this particular moment in time. Because as we look around our world, uh, you very much get the sense sometimes that you know, we're living kind of a little bit under Nero 2.0 where Christians are getting the blame for a whole bunch of things that are going wrong in the world. And so it's not unreasonable to think that we will be called to suffer for our faith in the very near future. 
as some are already doing, some of our brothers and sisters are doing around the world now. So the big question is that we're going to ask today is this, what do we do when it feels like our suffering as Christians will never end? Now, again, I don't think we're here yet, uh, at least not in the United States, but, but there's, there may come a time during, during our lives when this is the case, and it may seem like a very prolonged thing, and we may begin to lose hope. But I think what Peter does in this passage, that this, well, the, the passage that we're going to study this morning, is he begins to give us some, some tools to put in our toolbox, some, some things to begin to put into practice that if we do these things, it will help. And as is often the case, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, if this is like hit home, but oftentimes in God's word, the, the strategy that God equips us with as Christians to do what we are called to do involves both mental activity, the way we think, and it involves action, right? Uh, it's doing just one or just the other isn't enough. God is, he's gonna lay out in this text um, some things that we need to think and some things that we need to do. I find that, I just find that very interesting. I find that very, very interesting. Anyway, uh, I've broken this down into, into some, some keep statements that are in your outline, but uh, here they are. The first thing is in verse seven, keep your head. Keep your head. Look at what verse 7 says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, that first phrase, that first phrase, uh, the end is near or um, the end of all things is at hand. You could take that a lot of different ways. There are some people believe, that believe that early Christians in Peter's day thought that Christ would return again very soon. Uh, and that may or may not be the case. It's, it's a bit of speculation. But whatever the case, however you want to interpret that, here's one thing that we know, because as we read God's word, we see that there's really only two possibilities that are going to happen. One is, is that our uh, Christ will return, or the other is that we will die, right? And ultimately, in either one of those two scenarios, uh, that would mark the end of the suffering that we're facing on this earth. Now, there's also a third possibility, and that is that the conditions on the ground may change. Uh, a new ruler may come to power, a new, a new something might happen, a world event might happen that would bring an end to the suffering that Christians are facing at any particular time. But Peter is reminding his audience that there would be an end to suffering. I don't know about you, but that, that gives me great hope, right? Great hope that even if I live to the age of 100 or beyond, and in this life, Christians, uh, we hit intense persecution and suffering just to know that there's going to be an end date on that, right? Just to know that this is not going to be something that's going to go on forever. So there will be an end. We are also called to be, uh, there will be an end to your situation. We are also called to be sober-minded, now, again, this, this word, I, I think a good way to explain it is just, is just to say this. A few weeks ago, I presented a diagram about the heart as it's understood in God's word in the New Testament. The heart is the seat of our mind, our will, and our emotions, all three. Our mind, our will, emotions is what the, the Bible calls the heart. And of those three, what we are not to do is to allow our emotions to control us. We are to think with our mind. We are to make decisions with our will. 
And then following from that comes our emotions. Emotions are good. I love emotions. But they need to be grounded in the truth of God's word and wise decision making. In other words, we are to keep a cool head. I get it. When we read the news that's out there today and we, we take in the propaganda that's coming from into our eyeballs from the world about Christianity, it, it's thick. The propaganda is thick and it's easy, for, it's easy for us to become emotional. For me, most of the time, that, that emotion can manifest itself as anger. I'm angry at the people that are saying false things about Christians or they're, or they're purporting themselves to be pastors or preachers of the word and they're twisting the word of God. It makes me angry, right? But we have to understand, we have to understand that one of the tactics of the evil one is to get us all ginned up and get us all angry until we manifest that anger in unrighteous behavior, ungodly behavior, sinful behavior, and then the accuser can go to work accusing us. See, you don't really believe what you say you believe because look what you did. Look what you did. You erupted in unrighteous anger and you hit somebody. You erupted in unrighteous anger and you made a fool out of yourself at a school board meeting. You, you erupted in unrighteous anger and whatever. And so we need to be sober-minded. I'm not talking about being like Dr. Spock on Star Trek, you know, where we're just emotionless. Why, Captain, I think we've encroached into the neutral zone. No, we're not supposed to be stoics. We're not supposed to be emotionless. But the point is, is that we are to let biblical truth rule in our lives, in our thinking. Why? Because we know the whole story. We know that before the only one that it matters, God, our sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Our relationship with him has been secured by the blood of Jesus Christ, something we'll remember here in just a few minutes. But that work has been done. We are now liberated to live for him. And our eternal destiny is secure thanks to God's love, his grace, his mercy, the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's done. And so that allows us now to roam around this earth, to walk around this earth doing, doing that which we're called to do for Christ in a sober-minded way. We don't need to get heated. We don't need to be out of control because at the end of the day, we know our job is to articulate the gospel, is to articulate what God has done for us and let God the Holy Spirit do the rest in his sovereign, according to his sovereign plan. Amen? So we don't need to be the types of Christians that fly off the handle, that get angry, to think that, well, the world is using those tactics to change the world, so we're going to use the very same tactics to change it for Christ. That's not going to work. You cannot do God's business the world's way. It doesn't work. So we are to be sober-minded. We are also to be self-controlled. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And again, like I said, oftentimes our enemy, the, the devil, will try to push us until we break and lash out sinfully Peter is telling us that we need to discipline ourselves. And folks, I just want to say, this takes practice. It takes practice to, to watch. If every time you get on a certain social media platform and you start reading about what's going on in the world, you begin to get angry, hey, 
Maybe spend a little bit more time in God's word and a little bit less time on that platform, right? Knowing, and, and you have to know this if you haven't figured this out yet, knowing that a lot of the stuff that's being pushed at you on social media platforms is just sheer propaganda designed to elicit an emotional response. I mean, they don't call it clickbait for nothing, right? The news, or, or the news media doesn't say, if it bleeds, it leads for nothing. There's a lot of good things that are going on in this world, and, and it doesn't get much airtime because if it bleeds, it leads. There's also a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world, too. Anyway, we're supposed to, Peter is telling us that we need to discipline ourselves to continue to practice self control, even in the face of trial, persecution, and suffering. And then it says in the text, it says, for the sake of your prayers, is how the ESV renders that. Now, clearly there's places in God's word, uh, 1 Peter has got two of them, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, 1 Peter 5, 5, where God's word is telling us that operating our lives in sin can hinder our prayers. If we, if we violate the relationship that we have with God, he's gonna be less likely to hear our prayers uh, until we confess our sin, right, and get, get right with him. However, I think Peter has something else in mind in this particular passage, given the context. This is my theory. My theory is that when trials and suffering come, we may conclude, just in our human flesh, we may conclude wrongly that God has forgotten us. Especially if that trial, that suffering is prolonged over, over many days, weeks, months, years. We may conclude that God has forgotten us, which is not true. But part of being sober-minded and self-controlled is, and I think this is what Peter's saying, stay on your knees. Stay connected to God in prayer. Persevere in prayer through these things. And you'll see that if you look at other English translations, I think it comes out in different, I think uh, uh, the NASB says, for the sake of your prayers or something along those lines. So we are to keep our head. That's, that's the, the head work, okay? The, the mind work that we're supposed to be doing in this passage. The rest of this, and again, I, I just wanna point this out. Peter gives us some things to, 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 to focus on in our mental, you know, spiritual life. But then he's gonna give us a whole bunch of things to do uh, practically, practically. So he says this, keep loving, verse eight, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, suffering and trial is not an excuse to withdraw into yourself. Peter's saying, no, no, no. The strategy, the solution, the thing that you ought to be doing instead is keep on loving one another. And I think the one another that he's referring to here is believers, right? I think he's talking to believers, uh, Galatians 6.10 says this, it says, uh, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I continue to be convinced that one of the most powerful testimonies that we'll have to the outside world, meaning non-Christians, is the way we treat one another, the way we exist within this community of Christians, do we backbite and tear each other apart? Or when we have a problem with a person, do we go to that person and work it out constructively? Uh, when we have a brother or sister who is in need, do we ignore them and, let, and say, do for yourself? Or do we surround them in love and help them with their, with their needs? 
and so on and so forth. So he's encouraging us to keep loving one another. And he says, do it earnestly. To do it earnestly. Like the not just, this is not just a surface level thing, but, but keep doing it. Second Corinthians 8, 7 says this, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in, your love, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, we're, we're supposed to grow in these things. And even during a trial, during struggling, it would be good to grow, to be earnest and grow in our love for one another. And then there's that curious phrase at the end of the verse that, that is the subject of much conversation and spilled ink in the Christian world, the, the, the phrase that says, love covers a multitude of sin. This is the way I wrote it. Love reduces friction. <laughs> uh, maybe that's the engineer in me coming out. I don't know. But uh, love reduces friction. Let's just go down this scenario. And I think this is a very, a very typical scenario. At least I've talked to many people within our own church that have experienced this scenario. By the way, Proverbs 10, 12 says this, hatred stirs up tr- strife, but love covers all offenses. So this, this what Peter talks about is, is an Old Testament concept as well. It's, it's there. But there, here's a very typical scenario within the church. Someone does something to you or says something to you, or takes an action towards you, and you're tempted, you're, you're like, should I say something about that, or should I let it go? Because I, if I took it this way, it really doesn't mean anything, and maybe the person just misspoke, I don't know, maybe this is a misunderstanding, miscommunication. Should I do something about it, or should I, should I let it go? Well, uh, here's, the, here's the rule of thumb that I use. And again, this is just me trying to practice this uh, practically. If several hours later or by that evening, you've forgotten about it, it's like, eh. Somebody, my wife might remind me, remember earlier in the day, somebody said something to you and it bothered you? He said, oh, I forgot all about that then what I do is I I reason that love has covered it. And can I just say this? Can I just say this? I would argue this to you. To the extent that I have loved that other person, in other words, the deeper into a loving Christian relationship I am with a person that has offended me, or, or potentially, let's say, potentially offended me, the more that I have served that person, the more that I have uh, spent time building that person up, the more time I have spent on my knees in prayer for that person, lo and behold, the more likely I am to let love cover it. Because if I've gotten to know them and I've gotten to become intimate with them and I really understand their heart and they understand mine, if they say something that seems to me to be a bit off, I'm probably more likely to say, that's not what they meant. I know, I know that person, that's not what they meant. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna forget it. I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it. This is one of the reasons I think we need to keep loving one another, right? But if by the evening uh, it, or some, some period of time, you know, you, it doesn't have to be, like if it happened at seven o'clock, you don't have to try to do this test at 9 p.m., right? But, uh, but if, if a little bit later in time, you find that you can't 
let it go. Like you haven't forgotten about it or it's nagging you. I believe this is the Holy Spirit prompting me to contact that person and try to work it out. That's just the way I look at it. I think it's a very practical way to, to, to think about it. Because if, if, I'm, if I'm having a hard time letting it go, then I'm pretty convinced that there's an issue. And, I, and it may be just an issue where I just wanna make sure that we're okay. I just wanna make sure that we're, um, the relationship is good. Does that make sense? Give it a little bit of time. If you forget, forget about it, it's probably a good thing to let love cover it. But if it's not, if you haven't forgotten about it, it's time to, to, to get a hold of that other person and work it out. And let me remind you of, the, of communication. Communica- these are my communication suggestions, okay? Because we live in a world where, I mean, you can just get on your phone and you can say, hey, uh, today when you said this, I was offended and I think we need to talk and you better just, why don't you just text me back, please forgive me, and we'll go from there. Here's my suggestions on communication. Text messages and emails are to convey information like this. I'll see you tomorrow at breakfast, 6.30. We still good? Yeah. Hey, don't forget to pick up the eggs at the store. That, that, those are good text messages and good emails, right? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, to send an, an article or something, I could send it in a text message or an email. But if you need to have a conversation uh, with someone that might elicit emotion or might cause offense, as a minimum, please, my suggestion, have a voice-to-voice phone call. And if you think it's something that's a big deal, don't settle for anything less than the gold standard, which is a face-to-face conversation. God designed us to... Conv- you, know how many, you, know how many, you know how many fights have broken out in the Christian community over a misunderstood text message or email? Because why? Because we can't see each other's facial expressions. We can't, see, we can't read each other's body language. We can't detect tone of voice. And, and just in case you're, not like, you're like me and you don't like understand social, social cues sometimes, don't send an all caps email or text message. Do not do that. You know, uh, it, 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 to many people that conveys that you're yelling at them. So we're, we're to love one another. Keep loving. The next thing that we see in the text is keep hosting. Verse nine says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Philippians talks about grumbling. Uh, Philippians, uh, 2, uh, Philippians 2, 14 to 16 talks about it. It says, This, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, again, the way we, it's not just, it's not just showing hospitality, it's the way we show hospitality, like without grumbling, that is a very powerful testimony to the world. Anyway, we are to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Folks, there are so many benefits to hospitality, so many benefits to having other people, other Christians into your home. Uh, think about it. I, just, I listed a few here in my notes. Uh, it, it helps you to show love to another person by having them into your house for a meal, maybe a cup of coffee or something like that. 
It allows you to work on listening skills as they're explaining, you know, hey, how are you doing? Tell me what's going on in your life right now. And they speak, it helps you to develop good listening skills. It also helps you to work on articulating the truth to others. Perhaps as this person's talking, you're detecting, oh, this person is thinking very unbiblically about whatever they're telling me. And I need to, out of love for them, provide some exhortation, some, some gentle rebuke. And to practice that, you can, it's, it's, it's much, easily, much more easily done within the context over the kitchen table in your house or in the living room on the, on the easy chair than it is in a crowd at church, right? Practicing hospitality. Uh, you can encourage one another. That's much easier to do in a, in a, in a home setting. And then finally, just, just the idea of getting outside of yourself, of, of breaking down whatever selfishness, and we all have it, whatever selfishness that you have in your life, to really put yourself out there to bring someone else into your home and to just love on them, just to serve them. Again, what's the context of this? The context of this is the Christian community is suffering. You're going through tough times. And what is, a, this is shocking, right? What is one of the, you're going through tough times, the government's bearing down, there's persecution coming at the church, and what does Peter say? Have other people over. Have other Christians over and show them hospitality. That's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. Okay, also says keep serving. Look at verses 10 and 11, and I love this. As each person has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as each one, uh, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We have covered this before, so I don't need to to beat a dead horse. But for those of you that maybe haven't heard me speak of it, let's just talk quickly about this reality. In the church, and this applies to me as it applies to you. God has not, for some reason, in his sovereignty, invested all spiritual gifts into one person. It's not like I, as the pastor, one of the pastors of this church, have been invested by God with all the spiritual gifts. If you know me, you know that's not true. Instead, what God has decided to do is to give me some allotment of some of the spiritual gifts, and then to sprinkle all throughout the congregation of the church the others so that we need one another. If you go back to Ephesians 4, you can see a vivid illustration of this. So turn back in your Bibles for just a minute to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, one of the, one of the, one of the chapters of God's word that is just... I mean, if you master Ephesians 4 and you master living it out in your life, you'll be way ahead of the pack. But look what it says, Ephesians chapter four, uh, beginning in verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into into the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, stop right there. God, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just got done telling the church, hey, you're one. Be, you're, you're united, you're in Christ, you're one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then comes the contrast word, verse seven, 
but, okay, we're one, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, this is a reference back to Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. The idea in our minds is Christ, the triumphal warrior, defeating sin and death, and coming back from that battle and, and with all the plunder of the battle and redistributing it to his people. You get a gift, you get a gift, you get a gift. In saying, verse nine, he ascended, what does that mean but that he had also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who ascended is the one who also, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then it starts to enumerate some of those gifts. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, the, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has taken his church and he's made some of us the eye, some of us the hand, some of us the foot, some of us the elbow, spiritually speaking, as he's distributed these gifts. And we need each other for the body to build itself up in love and to function properly. We need each other. I need you. You need me. And if we go back to Peter, what Peter is saying is, you have a, received a gift from, uh, you, have received, you have a gift from God that others do not necessarily have and you are to steward that gift well. Take the way God made you and use it to build up, to serve the church for God's glory. And look at the examples that he, he gives. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracle of God. Do you know, my wife reminded me this, of this yesterday. This was a conversation. I don't want to get into it, the subject matter. But, but when my wife has to, to speak in front of people sometimes, she gets nervous. And she, said, and she said, do you get nervous when you're in the pulpit? And I said, no, not anymore. And she said, well, you're, you're weird. And I said, thank you. What do you mean? And she said, well, most people put public speaking right up there with death as their greatest fear, right? And it turns out that if you have a gift for public speaking and you're really compelling in your argumentation, then you can go out and find a spot in the world to make lots of money right? Lecturing, arguing, perhaps going into politics or something like that. You can go out and make lots of money, but look at what he says. He says, as whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracle of God. In other words, use that gift, use the gift of public speaking or perhaps teaching or, or even one-on-one -on -one discipleship, whatever gift that you have that's a speaking kind of a gift, use that gift to speak the oracles of God, If you have a gift of serving, whatever that looks like, it could be very practical things. It's a very broad term, but if you have the gift of serving, then serve, and when people say, thank you so much for serving me, thank you for doing, thank you for 
being a good plumber who came over and fixed my toilet, you say, I am only able to do this because this is the way God made me and he supplied the strength for me to be able to serve you, right? Bring God into it especially as we serve one another. Give him the glory. And we are to thank God for the gifts that he has supplied. Keep serving. Again, this is mind-blowing stuff. It's counterintuitive stuff. The, the, the Christian community in Peter's day is going through terrible suffering, terrible persecution. And what does he say? Keep serving. Don't stop. Don't lock yourself in your, in your house and just say, hey, can't serve anymore because things are bad. Keep doing it. And then finally, keep looking up. Peter ends this section with, of all things, a doxology. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is what that word means. It's true. What I just said, it's true. And so his is the glory, Peter says. It all belongs to him. Uh, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of God, full of grace and truth. And if you want to blow your mind sometime in your devotional, go and study what does it mean to be full of grace and truth. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff. His is the glory. Who deserves all the glory for what, for rescuing us from our sin? God does. Who deserves all the glory for making us the way that he did? God does. Who deserves the glory for any time that we can use anything that we have, any, any ability, whether it's public speaking, serving, whatever, any ability that we have to go and serve another human being, who deserves all the glory for that? God does. His is the glory. His is the dominion. What does that mean? He's ruler of all. Psalm 24, one says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. His is the glory. His is the dominion. God rules over everything. There's no place. There's no place you can hide. There's no place that you can go on this earth where God is not there. Even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering and trial, God is with you. He is there. And then uh, he is eternal. He is eternal. These problems that we face today, these problems that we may face in the future, they're gonna have a beginning, in, a beginning date and they're gonna have an end date. And again, that that end date may come because conditions on the ground change. That end date may come because we die. That end date might, might come because Christ returns. But there will be an end to our suffering on this earth. But there will be no end to God. He is eternal forever and ever. It's true. The question on the table this morning was this. What do we do when it feels like our suffering as Christians will never end? And the answer I would submit to you today, oops, here's Revelation 22, 13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Like I'm the A and the Z in English. 
The, the answer to the question is this. The remedy for suffering that seems never-ending, the, the suffering that just seems to go on and on, is to be calm, to be clear, clear what the Bible says, clear what God's will is, connected. I use that word to, to refer to all the times it says that we're to love one another, to serve one another, to all, all these things. And cooperation is the one another's. Connected also means connected to God, right? Stay on your knees in prayer. And in cooperation, working with one another. Listen, I'm not a, I'm not a therapist. I, I rarely talk about anything in the psychological world from the pulpit, but I, as I look around the world and I see people encountering various kinds of problems and they're hard and I'm not trying to say anybody's whatever. I'm not trying to make a judge. I'm just saying the people that I see that navigate trials most effectively seem to be the ones who stay focused on exactly the things that Peter describes in this text. In other words, they don't just withdraw and isolate and go into themselves and focus on their problems Instead, they remember who God is, they keep that fresh in their mind, and they begin to serve others. They seem to do very well. So, some possible application is this. Which of the above, I, I would just pick one maybe. Um, which, one, which of the above items needs work in your life? And, and very simply, what will you do about it? Maybe you do notice, and, and this, is, this is a thing that if you can, if you can be self-aware enough to notice that whenever you get into hard times, you, you tend to run away and isolate, this is something that you could probably work on uh, to, to, to keep pouring into other people, keep uh, uh, serving others and loving others, uh, even through the midst of difficult times with your eye constantly focused on God. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps you've got a gift and you've just decided that you're gonna make it your life's, your life's goal to parlay that gift that God has given you into lots of money and income. And you, it never occurred to you that perhaps you could use that gift that God has given you for his good and for his glory and for the building up of the body of Christ because you've, you've busied yourself so much with using that gift to earn income. Maybe it's time to reevaluate that just a bit. And I'm sure that there are many, or several at least in this congregation, who, have, who could find at least one of these things that, that you could work on. All right. I'm gonna ask the men who are gonna help serve the Lord's table to come forward, and um, we're going to partake together today. You guys could come forward and have a seat. That'd be great. Every once in a while, uh, if you've, I know things got really chopped up during COVID, but um, every once in a while in our, in our church, we like to uh, have the Lord's table in the morning, especially for those in our congregation who are older um, and maybe don't want to come out at night or drive at night or whatever. Uh, this is just a service to them. And it's also nice for us all, you know, we have a, a bigger 
group in the mornings, tend to anyway, than, uh, than on Sunday evening. So this is a real blessing. But one of the things, um, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about the institution of the Lord's table. One of the things that Paul reminds us of in that uh, text is this. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And remember how the text in 1 Peter started. The end of all things is at hand. I, I just want to connect those two thoughts quickly. We live as Christians in tremendous hope, right? As I've stated to you before, and I'm going to keep beating this drum, as Christians, we are in the ultimate win-win situation. Amen? If God, if, if somehow between now and the time we get home today, God were to take us in his sovereign plan, if he were to take us in death, we'll be in his presence. We, we will be instantly liberated from the suffering and sin of this life forever. Yes. If God in his sovereign plan allows us to live just one more day, one more month, one more year, hey, each one of those days is an opportunity to serve him in fruitful ministry on the earth, knowing that that day is coming when we will be with him. We are in the ultimate win-win situation. And so our time around the Lord's table is designed to be a thing that we do on a routine basis. We, do, we happen to do it once a month where we remind ourselves of the payment that had to be made to put us in that situation. Right? Let's contrast this quickly with the world. If you are an unbeliever, you're not in a win-win situation. If you're an unbeliever, you may have an outlook on life that says, today is going to be drudgery, and if I die, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, we do. Apart from Christ, a person is going to die, and left in their unforgiven state for their sin, they will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. And so the Lord's table is a reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, took on flesh, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sin. It would have been enough if he had just died on the cross and spilled his blood for our sin. That's what the juice represents. But he took on flesh, and he came, and he lived among us, and he taught us, and he showed us an example and that's what the bread represents. These are symbolic things. There's nothing about the Lord's table that saves anybody. This, this sacrament is simply something that the Lord has given us to, to allow us to pause from the busyness of life, the hustle and bustle of the daily grind, and remind ourselves, my life was paid for by Jesus Christ. My goal, my mission is to follow him. And his mission that he was on the earth to accomplish was to draw people to himself, to salvation. So our mission, should you choose to accept it, our mission is to follow Christ by making our lives, conforming our lives to his mission, to live in such a way to speak the gospel to people, to pray and ask God to save their souls and to draw them to himself. 
This is a monthly reminder that we go through to remind ourselves of these realities. So it's a remembrance, a somber remembrance, because we've sinned a lot, folks. <laughs> it's a somber remembrance that we've been forgiven of much, but it's also a call to action to adopt the mission of Jesus Christ. Just as a reminder, uh, these elements are coming to you in two and one. We've got a lower cup that's got a cracker, uh, the bread in it, and the upper cup has the uh, juice. So just be very careful. You'll have to take the elements and then separate them out. Also, just a reminder that you, don't, you do not need to be a member of our church in order to partake of communion. We, we practice open communion. You just need to be a professing believer, follower of Jesus Christ. And then the other thing is I would argue that I would argue from Scripture, Matthew 5, that, that in order to partake with a clear conscience, you need to be in good relationship with other believers. Meaning, if you are in a conflict with another believer that you can do something about, you can, maybe you've already approached that person and they say, I don't want to talk to you. I think you can take communion with a clear conscience. But if there's, there's a conflict going on between you and another believer, I believe you should try to clear that up first. Let the cup and the bread pass. Clear that up first, and the next time we gather, partake with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've allowed us to gather, to pause, and to partake of this sacred meal. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, his death, his burial, and his victorious resurrection signifying that he has defeated sin and death. Father, allow us now these moments together to examine ourselves, to look at our lives under the, under the lens of your son, Jesus, to ask ourselves the questions, are we walking in his way? Are we, have we adopted his mission in our life? And where do we need to change and grow to be more like him? So in these moments, Father, help us to examine ourselves. Reveal to us the things that need to be revealed. Stir us to action. Help us to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.